Unsettling Languages, Unruly Body Minds, Imaging a Crip Linguistics. Plain Language Abstract. People use languages in different ways. Some people use language to help find other people like them. Many people use language in specific ways because of how their body and mind work. Sometimes a person's environment and material conditions forces them to use language in a certain way. However, when someone languages outside of what people think is normal, others can think that they are bad with language, or not as smart, or are broken. We are trying to point out that no one is actually bad with language. Our goal with this paper is to help people understand that no language is bad. It is okay to want to change your own language use if it will make you feel better, but no one should make you feel bad about your language. We need a bigger and more flexible understanding of what language is and what it communicates about a body-mind's capacity. Keywords, crip linguistics, disability, languaging, and multimodality. By John Hanna and Octavian Robinson. Section 1. Introduction. In 2020, a conspiracy sped across the TikTok scene. Helen Keller could not possibly have existed nor successfully learned to communicate if she indeed was both deaf and blind. As a deaf and blind person, it was difficult for people to conceive of Keller as someone who had language. Journalist Rebecca Onion, 2021, wrote of the conspiracy, It was not a deficit of knowledge, but an active contestation of it. The core argument made by Keller conspiracy theorists was that if a person could not access language by either ear or eye, then how could they possibly have produced books, writings, and speeches? At the heart of this unfortunate debate was not whether a deafblind person could use language. Instead, it was about if language, intelligence, and competence could be perceived or expressed outside of popularly conceived norms. These norms and popular beliefs are largely centered on verbal speech and hearing that are unmarked by disability. Limited thinking about what language is and is not often excludes different ways of languaging, such as touch, drawing, gesture, and even the place of time itself in languaging. The expansive linguistic potential of the human body-mind is best understood through a critical disability lens. The term body-mind, as we use it, marks the inseparable relationship between the body and mind. Although the body and mind are interconnected, different effects may emerge depending upon how people's disabilities interact with their other identities and social categories. Shock 2018. Recognizing the body-mind is pivotal to understanding human linguistic potential, because language is an embodied action or an expression of the interconnected relationship between mind and body. Bergen 2012. Body minds can be perceived as deficient because of gender, including nonconformity, race, fatness, ethnicity, or disability, among other identifiable traits, both immutable and mutable. Bainton, 2001. Linguistics reproduces and refracts structures of power by placing disabled ways of languaging on the margins, 
through ignoring, minimizing, or seeking to correct how disabled people use languages. Meanwhile, many abled linguists stigmatize the language use of marginalized subjects by referring to their language as disordered. Disabled subjects from marginalized groups experience multiple intersections of language dismissal and stigmatization, as we will discuss later. Linguists contribute to deficit perspectives of languages and therefore intrinsically to deficit perspectives of their users. We argue that the field requires broadening to account for how typically marginalized groups use language. A cripping of linguistics is necessary. This is the core argument of Charity Hudley's essay, The Lung, in press. In that essay, Charity Hudley examines how losing a portion of her lung to cancer forced her to examine the role of bodies in languaging, and how different identities can change how people perceive bodies, especially disabled bodies. Beyond providing lenses to help people study how disabled people use language, the theoretical framework of crip linguistics directly challenges disability stigmas surrounding language. The crypt linguist highlights the linguistic adaptations used by disabled people, including their relations and world-making, and illuminates structures of ableism that govern how we perceive language. As Hudley 2008 reminds us, activism is embedded in the field of linguistics. Linguists have an obligation to promote activism on behalf of the people who language. Many linguists will wonder how crip linguistics goes beyond critical applied linguistics, Pennycook 2021. The answer comes from Pennycook's own critical applied linguistics critical reintroduction, which is a revision and update of the original 2001 book. In the chapter that focuses on the politics of difference, Pennycook writes, We will focus on forms of difference, typically along lines of class, race, gender, and sexuality, and why they matter for any critical applied linguistics project, page 84. Even within critical applied linguistics, no frame of disability is used. Similarly, Pillar 2021's recommendations on how to overcome linguistic injustice does not consider multimodality, nor how disability and disabled needs alter our concepts of language justice. Our goal is to bring disability into focus. There can be no critical applied linguistics, nor linguistic justice, or any sort of linguistics, without analysis of disability. As Pennycook 2010 himself wrote, we cannot take language, the body, the environment, space, as given entities with evident meanings. All these emerging orientations locate language as something done in a particular time and space. Page 16.8. What is disability, if not the interaction of language, the body-mind, and the environment, as something done in a particular time and space. Section 2. Crip Linguistics Crip is used in a variety of ways. For some, it is a slur. For us, and in disability activism, and in activist-oriented disability studies, crip is a verb. Sandall, 2003. To crip is to disrupt the stable, transform the familiar, subvert the order of things, unsettle entrenched beliefs, and to make anew. 
in action, cripping linguistics is to uncloak mainstream representations or practices to reveal able-bodied assumptions and exclusionary effects and expose the arbitrary delineation between normal and defective and the negative social ramifications of attempts to homogenize humanity. Sandall, 37. Custers and Ho, 2020, point out that the overall pattern in linguistics is for linguists to treat language as separate from the people that produce language. While we have some linguists studying languages that are produced by disability ways of being and knowing in the world, a critical disability lens allows us to highlight problems with the status quo and possibilities for real transformation. Here, we continue Custers and Ho 2020's discussion of signed language research and linguistic ethnography, which introduces us to the novel ways of understanding linguistics through and by signed language researchers. We also extend Pennycook 2021's work on critical applied linguistics. Our hope is that this article elevates the importance of talking about language as an embodied entity, intertwined with people and shaped by researcher bias. Separating people from language is to dehumanize language users in pursuit of understanding language as a discrete entity. A critical disability lens exposes the ways linguists dehumanize language by using the rhetorics of disorder and deficit, and that linguistics including ethnography would be enriched by critical disability studies frameworks and theories. This enrichment is not limited to formal academic understandings of disability, but also rooted in deaf and cropistemologies, deaf and disabled ways of being and knowing in the world. For example, Ho and Custer's 2020, Moriarty Harrelson 2017. This article is an attempt to create a mandate for change in linguistics and related fields such as specialized education. Crip linguistics means to critique language and language scholarship through the lens of disability, include disabled perspectives, elevate disabled scholars, center disabled voices in conversations about disabled languaging, dismantle the use of disorder and deficit rhetorics, and finally, welcome disabled languaging as a celebration of the infinite potential of the body-mind. One example of why linguistics needs cripping is found in the general Introduction to Linguistics curriculum. While no hard data exists on the extent to which this is true, anecdotally, signed languages are not taught in Introduction to Linguistics courses as a languaging modality, but as a special or disordered kind of language that is usually relegated to a single chapter of a textbook, if it is mentioned at all. For example, Anderson 2018's Essentials of Linguistics, a popularly taught open access linguistics textbook, has four chapters focused on sounds and only a single sentence on signed languages in a summary, which inaccurately describes hand signs as the analog for sounds. Page 33. Part of this tendency to see non-speech languages as disordered is also reflected in Berko Gleason and later Ratner's long-revised book, The Development of Language, 2017. Deaf people in the development of language are discussed in the context of atypical language acquisition, page 5, 
in the context of primate language, more specifically that primate language studies had to fail for able researchers to be interested in studying signed languages, page 12, in the context of deaf voices sounding funny, page 54, and in the context of print literacy rates, page 42. While some details are provided about the deaf community and signed language structures, phonology of language is defined as all the important speech sounds it uses, page 7. So signed languages are unnatural, disabled ways of languaging, having no intrinsic merit for study, voices marked by accents are sources of humor and further marginalization, and low print literacy rates do not merit interrogation of the reasons for the low rates. Discussions of signed languages are often framed in deficit frameworks, despite scholarship on deaf gain and signed language poetics, Bauman and Murray 2014, Bauman, Nelson and Rose 2006. As little as there has been about signed languages and linguistics, other forms of disabled languaging have had even less discussion. The field of linguistics continues to place disabled forms of languaging on the margins, while using ableist rhetoric to uphold racism, sexism, transmisia, and what crip theorist Robert McRuer 2006 describes as compulsory able-bodiedness and compulsory heteronormativity. Succinctly, linguistics needs cripping. Crip linguistics emerges from historical and modern deaf studies, examining how different cultures, primarily those in the US and Europe, treat deaf children and adults. In deaf education, for example, racist and ableist beliefs about language, combined with desires to justify racism, colonial policies, and ableist frameworks, led to monolingual and monomodal educational approaches. Simply put, speech and trade, capitalism, became the primary learning mission over any kind of other learning. Those beliefs contributed to an epidemic of language deprivation for generations of deaf and disabled children through the school system. Deaf studies has a long tradition of discussing language attitudes and the relationship to personhood, humanity, and intelligence. A major thread is the relationship between language and the notion of evolutionary progress. The association of signed languages with beasts and lesser-evolved humans means that signed languages and disabled ways of languaging became markers of abnormality and justifications for othering in creating racist, ableist, and speciest hierarchies, Claire 2017. Speech serves as a dominant marker of personhood, supported by centuries of religious thought and philosophy, reified by Darwinist theory, and reinforced by contemporary linguistics and linguists, Bauman 2004, Bauman 2007. Deaf people, for example, are usually depicted in terms of poor behavior, Antia et al. 2011. Deaf children are additionally described as causing their parents stress by not being able to talk like hearing children, uh, Quitner et al. 2010, Percy Smith et al. 2018. As discrete scholars like Anama, Bowl, Moore and Klinger 2013 explain, any child that exists outside of what is expected to be normal must swiftly and oppressively be corrected such that they can be normalized. 
Structures surrounding language and ability are not static, as historians of sound, medicine, and technology demonstrate. Mondelli 2021, Verdi 2020, Naya 2020, Healy 2019. The attitudes that contributed to disabling deaf children in their schools by removing them from the accessible communication of the signed language classroom and their supportive peers, and placing them in hearing-only classrooms or in spoken and listening language-only environments, as described by Valente 2011 and Valente and Bolt 2016, are not limited solely to deaf children. Historically, language attitudes, including those manifested by linguistics and educational research, have severe consequences for disabled people's agency, personhood, belonging to different communities, and so much more. As disabled author Eli Clare 2017-157 wrote, In today's world, being seen as intellectually, cognitively, or developmentally disabled is dangerous because intelligence and verbal communication are entrenched markers of personhood. Clare claims the obvious. The weaponization of intelligence and language have cumulative effects on access to education, employment, housing, sexuality, respect, belonging, community, agency, and personhood. Ableist ideas about language are used with other structures of power to maintain capitalism, white supremacy, ableism, misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia. Allen, 2018. With language, we use crip time, how disabled people use time as a part of languaging, crip technoscience, or how people interact with technology, and linguistic care work, how disabled people work together to co-construct meaning, as frameworks to disrupt those various power structures and unsettle beliefs about what the appropriate ways to language are. Michelle Friedner and Pamela Block, 2017, through the frameworks of deaf and autistic studies, suggests that disabled languaging should challenge us to consider that which is non-linguistic as authoritative and meaningful. Cripplinguistics resists compulsory abledness by celebrating disabled ways of languaging, the disabled knowledge that shapes language and communicative practices, and refusals to conform to normal language speech. By heeding disabled people's relationship with language, languaging, and world-making, we note that disabled people are effective agents of world-building and dismantling toward more socially just relations. Hamrai and Fritsch, 2019. One major branch of this work appears in linguistic ethnography by signed language researchers. Custers and Ho, 2020, offer an expansive definition of linguistic ethnography, to include signed language researchers who come from a variety of backgrounds but use a variety of ethnographic methodologies, named and unnamed, in their work. Cripplinguistics, as a theory, encourages linguistics to reintegrate languaging with all bodies. The framework can be used to recognize language as a critical site of agency and an important form of care work. Linguistic care work embraces interdependence between languages as a practice of collective access in desire to work toward mutual understanding. Working together to ensure that all languages in conversation can make themselves understood and be understood in kind is linguistic care work. Language is central to our conceptualization of personhood. 
Language has long been used as a marker to separate humans from animals. Bickerton, 2009. Perceptions of what is and what is not language, judgments on the quality of language, and decisions made on the basis of language, including accents and dialects, then possess tremendous power in determining one's humanity. Pennycook, 2018. Language as a social institution plays a central role in determining a person's belonging in society. Disabled ways of languaging have been used to mark bodies as non-human and thus not deserving of equal treatment or a place in the world. The most popular application of animalizing disabled ways of languaging arose in the mid to late 20th century with human attempts to teach apes and chimpanzees how to sign. Petito 2000. To this day, there exists a popular association of primates with signed languages, to the point where it was a central plotline in Godzilla vs. Kong, a 2021 US-based movie. Disabled languaging is seen in proximity to animal languaging. Like Berko Gleason and Ratner 2017 write, interest in signed language research in humans only came about because of research on teaching primates how to sign. Section 3. Modality Chauvinism, aka What's Our Motivation? As we've been pointing out, spoken language has long been tied to judgments of a person's capacity and intelligence, and by extension, their humanity. Bauman 2004, Edwards 2012, Berger 2014, Claire 2017. Spoken language is also interpreted through a racialized lens to measure people's intelligence. Flores and Rosa, 2015, Rosa and Flores, 2017, Leonardo and Broderick, 2011, which uses rhetorics of disability, such as diminished capacities, to rationalize such framing. But as Flores and Rosa's combined research demonstrates, language itself is racialized, and through those racialized lenses, the people who use racialized language are viewed as lesser. For example, Rosa 2019 focuses on how people with Spanish repertoires are viewed as less intelligent. As he writes, Earlier that year, a self-identified white monolingual English-speaking teacher explained to me that, among other signs of her stupidity, Dr. Baez's English language skills are horrible and, from what I hear, her Spanish isn't that good either. Page 126. The Dr. Baez mentioned in that passage had multiple degrees and was the principal of the bilingual school. Signed languages as languages are also racialized by who uses them, much in the same way that spoken languages are racialized. Hill 2012, for example, points out that white signers tend to have negative perceptions of black signers and their languaging. Measures of intelligence were often coded measures of a person's ability to pass as white. Henner and Robinson, 2021, Leonardo and Broderick, 2011. Language tests were used to determine mental fitness and, by extension, permission to belong. For example, immigrants were subject to mental fitness evaluations as determined through discourse and conversation between immigrant and the immigration officer. The immigration officer had no formal training in psychiatry. Dolmage argues that this discourse-based interaction opened the doors for racialized measures of intelligence via language use. Dolmage, 2011. Such interactions were certainly influenced by the officer's perception 
of the immigrants' perceived social categories. Ethnic exclusion would capitalize upon intelligence tests and mastery of language as justifications for exclusion. Thus, to perform ability, one must also perform whiteness through both modality and language. Henner and Robinson 2021 described one aspect of performing ability as performative hearingness, where deaf people are acknowledged for how much they are able to approximate hearing people in speech and mannerisms. In that case, hearingness becomes a property or kind of indexicality that helps people align with the dominant power structures in a culture. As Leonardo and Broderick 2011 argue, Intelligence and whiteness are also both property, and because language is a mediator of both smartness and whiteness, it is a significant site of property, power, and privilege, which then shapes the types of capital available from society. Language is a form of capital. The crux of the issue is that many linguists consider speech to be the only viable and acceptable form of languaging. Few linguists will mention this overtly, and most linguists will point to gesture or signed language as evidence that language is not limited solely to the oral or oral modalities. That is because linguists are used to thinking of languages as spoken, and gesture and signed language exists only in special situations, or as abstracted and non-concrete examples of how languages can be other than speech. Also, another problem is binary thinking. That is, only signed languages exist in opposition to spoken languages, that people use one or the other, rather than a combination of semiotic tools, that languaging can exist in spaces outside of conventional spoken and signed languages, for example using interaction and language games to co-construct meaning. Those binary structures suggest people either have language or do not have language, and thus are languageless. See Moriarty Harrelson 2019 for a discussion of this. This binary thinking leads to erasure of the non-dominant form. For example, at the time of this writing, the Linguistic Society of America, LSA, the preeminent professional organization of linguists in the United States, described linguistics as, in a nutshell, linguistics is the scientific study of language. Linguists apply the scientific method to conduct formal studies of speech sounds, grammatical structures, and meaning across the world's 6,000-plus languages. LSA 21, page 1. If the LSA cannot identify that linguistics is the study of language and not necessarily speech, then what does that say about linguists themselves and the status of non-spoken languaging in the science of language? While there are linguistic anthropologists who have contributed to understanding disability and language, revealing remarkable discoveries about cognition and human nature, this information has been siloed from the work of many theoretical and applied linguists. The artificial limitation of linguistics to speech is an automatic extension of the cultural belief that the only valid languaging is speech. This belief shows up in many linguistics-based media. For example, the below meme, figure one. Uh, image description of figure one, it is a two-panel Winnie the Pooh meme, where the top panel shows Winnie the Pooh sitting on a chair in an orange t-shirt, looking sort of bored and vaguely expressionless. The text that accompanies this image says linguistics. 
The second panel illustrates Winnie the Pooh uh, looking very sophisticated in a uh, in a full tuxedo uh, and with his eyebrows raised in a sort of pleased, comical, sophisticated expression. Um, and the text that accompanies it says, Tongology. Uh, the image is a screenshot from Twitter. End image description. The meme is an example of the tuxedo poo structure. Tuxedo poo can progress through multiple layers of sophistication, where the associated sophistication is matched with an equally sophisticated poo. The t-shirt poo represents the less sophisticated idea, and the tuxedo represents the more sophisticated idea. The idea associated with the tuxedo poo may not appear more sophisticated on the surface, for example, the sophistication of linguistics is not tongology, but can be abstracted in ways where the surface humor provides layered meaning a la semiotics, Morel 2016. For example, if one believes that languages can only come from the tongue, then linguistics would be the study of tongues, for example, mother tongues, or here, tongology. We have previously argued that part of the reason that scholars tend to avoid talking about signed languages and gestures is that the communities that use them as a primary form of languaging are disabled, see Hannah and Robinson 2021, or that individuals are deficient, removing them from their environments and interlocutors, Goodwin 2004. The pathologization of signed languages emerged in the 18th century with the installation of Dr. Jean-Marc Itard at the Institut National de Jeunes Sœurs de Paris. Itard classified deaf children on the basis of language use, marking those who signed as more deficient than those who could partially hear and emulate speech. Lane 1976. This disabling effect is also observed in how people separate language users from their semiotic matrices, their environments, their interlocutors, and the linguistic resources available. Goodwin 2004. The social and relational models, for example, Custis 2015, Goodwin 1995, Goodwin 2004, suggest instead that signed languages and other forms of languaging across modalities in the semiotic matrix are influenced by our environments and material conditions, as well as social attitudes and relationships. This cannot be decontextualized from local understandings of disability and ability. Livingston, 2006. Gresh and Solidatic, 2015. So languages either modeled as deficient through pathologized views of the body or negative racialized views of the body, Flores and Rosa, Rosa and Flores, or viewed as a relational act influenced by social attitudes about language. The relationship between disability and language also contributes to the institutionalization of deaf and disabled people, markedly impacting non-white deaf and disabled people. Institutionalization also locked away disabled people in institutes and prisons, often for life. As was the case for Junius Wilson, a black deaf man, Birch and Joyner, 2007. Given his prior education at a segregated school for the deaf, it is likely that Wilson used a form of black ASL. See Hill 2017 for a description. When Wilson was brought in for questioning and criminal proceedings, he was found incompetent to stand trial because he was perceived as a languageless person. One of his interviewers was the jailer Carl Cook, who claimed he knew sign language. 
The problem was that he did not know black ASL, or even that such a dialect existed. He then read Wilson's black and deaf body as languageless, or in his words, incapable of coherent or intelligent answers. This determination led to a series of events that included sterilization and seven decades in an institution. His imprisonment continued even after social workers discerned he was able to communicate in black ASL. Linguists generally understand that languaging is used in forms of oppression. As Blomart 2005 wrote in his introductory textbook on critical discourse, differences in the use of language are quickly and quite systematically translated into inequalities between speakers. Page 70. In parsing this quote, most linguists are able to recall specific studies or vignettes which explore how language differences create marginalization. Pillar 2020, for example, argues that in most places, language discrimination is acceptable. Certainly, language is used to oppress across gender and sex. Zimmern 2019. Zimmern 2019, for example, explains how pronouns are used to force notions of correct sexuality and gender representation on trans bodies. An explicitly misgendered person is informed that they are not performing their undesired gender correctly. It is an attempt to linguistically repair a perceived physical error. For example, you are not an adult human female. Language is also used to enforce racial distinctions. Rickford and King 2016, for example, detailed how African-American English creates judicial inequalities, wherein the use of African-American English and dialectical variations of African-American English causes white people to discount the lived testimony of black witnesses. Language can also be used to racialize a group of speakers. Rosa 2019 detailed how a community of Latinx teenagers in the United States navigated English, Spanish, and how brownness and foreignness is attributed to speakers of Spanish, regardless of where they live and their upbringing. Language also marks social class, block 2015. Class, for example, situates forms of languaging, such as if bilingualism is prized or a method for racialization and sorting into specialized education classrooms. Choe Peña, 2020. The examples of sex, gender, race, and class are not the only types of ways that language is used to oppress. Although they are among the larger categories of discussion, although Block 2015 argues that class is not considered a factor in enough applied linguistics analyses. As mentioned before, disability is a prominent category by which language is used to oppress. Language use both disables and represents disability. This is partially evident in how people reflect language use as disordered, such as specific language impairment, SLI, or developmental language disorder. Bishop 1992. Disabling language also shows up in comments such as learning disabilities are language disorders, Sun and Wallace 2014. Disabling language exists in ways outside the school system as well. For example, the Hart and Risley posited a 30 million word gap, uh, which was presented as evidence that racialized and poorer families do not expose their children to language equivalent in quantity or quality to non-racialized and wealthier families. Hart and Risley, 1995, 2003. 
Regarding the 30 million word gap, Figueroa, M. Figueroa Personal Communication 2021, points out that if it were real, it would be a form of extreme language deprivation. Language deprivation is a form of disabling abuse that is normally limited to children who are born deaf or hard of hearing. Hall, Levin and Anderson, 2017. Yet, with the 30 million word gap, people seem to be working to expand the definition of language deprivation and its disabling effects to include racialized people and people in poverty. Section 4. Coming to Claim Cripplinguistics The clear relationship between language, linguistics, and disability necessitated the introduction of a disabled lens through which languaging can be analyzed. To do this, we will claim to crip linguistics and propose a framework of crip linguistics. Crip linguistics is not novel nor new. Disability has long been a part of linguistic analysis. But a crip linguistics intervenes in mainstream linguistics discussions to destigmatize yet center disability in conversation. As for disabled ways of languaging, we seek not only extraordinary examples of the normative like signed languages, but also the more quotidian and local forms of disability, like stuttering, crippled speech, and as Friedner and Block 2017 highlight, attending to other forms of communication and meaning-making that are not linguistic. Page 290. We heed Friedner and Block's caution that foregrounding signed languages need not result in not engaging with other ranges of communicative repertoires or the more daily forms of disabled languaging. Friedner and Block posited questions about disability frameworks of languaging at the intersections of deaf and autism studies, encouraging us to expand definitions and understandings of human language, as well as how our discourses surrounding disabled languaging contributes to hierarchies of disability. For example, the speaking deaf person, performative hearingness, Henner and Robinson, 2021, and the verbose autistic person, Friedner and Block, 2017. How might a disability framework of language teach us about ways of dismantling toward more just relations? That is, disabled languaging is not just about the individual, but also their linguistic ecologies and semiotic matrices. One illumination of this is Moriarty and Custer's 2021, who wrote about the morality-infused translingual practices among deaf people who come together using different signed languages and possessing different semiotic repertoires. To promote crip linguistics, we offer some grounding statements that will guide this overview. The statements will become subsections and will be expanded upon. They are, point one, a crip linguistics is necessary for analyzing human languaging, lest we reproduce inequities. Point two, a crip linguistics recognizes that language is multimodal. Point three, a crip linguistics embraces disabled ways of being in producing language, sensory orientations, interdependence, mutual aid and world building, care work, and the ways that time interacts with the body, mind, and language. Section 5. A crip linguistics is necessary for analyzing human languaging. Subsection 5.1. An introduction and some caveats. A crip linguistics holds three essential truths. A. Language is not inherently disordered, although impairments may exist. B. 
social perceptions on disability disorders language use, and C, disability in languaging cannot be separated from normative expectations of language use. Cryplinguistics is a natural extension of the idea that all language variation is acceptable. Example, Labov 1972. We expect that most readers will take easily to the second and third stipulation of cryplinguistics. The first may be a bit more difficult to digest because the idea that language is disordered is fundamental to many fields, for example, specialized education. One thing we want to stress is that no theory is perfect, including ours. For example, what of deaf children who are deprived of language either through malice or through ignorance? See Hall, Hall, and Caselli 2020. Is their resulting language not disordered? Here is where threading the needle on this very real question could have consequences. Their language was impaired by their material conditions and environmental factors, but their language is not disordered because they are deaf children that would naturally gravitate to signed language in multimodal avenues of communication. Language deprivation results in language that then must be accommodated to encounter the ableist structures that generated such conditions in the first place. If people misunderstand our argument that the language manifested from language deprivation or other inequities generated by material conditions is not inherently disordered, then there is a non-zero chance that schools and early intervention specialists attempting to save money would use our theories as justifications for not providing support. We exist in a world where identification of disabilities for educational support services is fraught with bias and racial and gender bias discrimination. See Fisher, Fisher and Rayleigh 2020 for examples. Yet, in the States, identification is necessary to get the support that many disabled children need to manage the ableist, racist, and sexist institution that is the American school system. Anama and Morrison, 2018. Also, there is a possibility that people opposed to non-spoken modalities would use our theories as justifications for enforcing their monomodal frameworks. This has happened before when advocates of fluent signed language environments for deaf children found that monomodal opponents were using those arguments to claim that since hearing parents of deaf children could never be fluent in signed languages, they should just use monomodal approaches to education. See Gears et al. 2019. Because of disabling legal and cultural systems, Disabled languages often exist in the borderlands between disordered and non-disordered. The dichotomy between disordered and non-disordered is rendered in Moriarty Harrelson, 2019. The deaf Cambodians described in her research are classically language disordered, in that no language is inherently disordered, uh, in that they are deprived of language by their environment. However, via competence, they create systems of languaging that expand as they enter new spaces, resulting in the flexible accumulation of languaging practices and modalities. Page one. Moriarty Harrelson concludes her point by reminding us that we cannot dismiss how the deaf Cambodians language just because they do not use a formally recognized Cambodian sign language. The core of our argument is don't hate the player, hate the game. We also explicitly reject those people who would use our arguments to confer harm upon disabled children 
via language deprivation. Cryptlinguistics is fundamentally a resistance against monomodal spoken language-only policies and the belief that there is one right way to language. It also urges us to assume that all people are competent co-participants in constructing meaning. As Goodwin 1995 urged with Rob, an aphasic man, deal with his talk and gesture as an effort to say something meaningful rather than the random movements of a disabled man. It should not be used to argue that deaf people should not have access to natural signed languages, for example, because they can build a communicative repertoire using systems, cues, and incomplete access to spoken language. Part of this is because non-deaf children automatically have access to natural languages, whereas for most deaf children, approximately 95%, this choice must be made, and the reasons for those choices are often rooted in ableist, anti-signed language rhetoric. Scott and Henner, 2020. Cryplinguistics frames language as a form of care work, where we collectively work to provide access and co-construct meaning. In the words of Sins Invalid, a disability justice performance group, bring flexibility and creative nuance to be in community with each other. Burn 2018. Therefore, it is a form of care work for us to accommodate disabled body minds and their natural ways of languaging. We also reject the use of crip linguistics to discriminate against or to diminish the desires of people who want their language to be identified as disordered. Because our world is constructed as such that sometimes pathologization of language is disordered is the only way that one can receive the accommodations and legal protections one requires as a non-normative language user. This stance does present an odd contradiction to our point that language cannot be disordered. Yet, like with language deprivation, Recognizing the complexities between environmental disordering of language, justifying that all languaging is valid, and self-perception of languaging is valid. On this point, we recognize that cryplinguistics is not universal across all contexts. As Robert McCrua 2010-171 explains, disabled people experience uneven biopolitical incorporation. What that means is that disabled people, and by extension disabled ways of languaging, are not treated the same socially or politically across the globe. Disability as a category is fluid, dependent upon context and material conditions. Schalk 2013, Livingston 2006, Gresham Soldatic 2015. However, a critical disability lens on language offers important insights on how we judge capacity, humanity, and belonging, or the worthiness of belonging, um, and how those logics support the logics of exclusion, disempowerment, and violence. To crip linguistics is to examine practices, attitudes, and rhetorics through a critical disability lens to reveal ableist assumptions and its exclusionary effects. There are certainly cases where application of cryplinguistics is fundamentally flawed. We also go back to our assertion that no theory is perfect and cannot be pertinent in every single case. People are intricate beings with desires and thoughts that vary from minute to minute, and these thoughts often contradict each other. As Whitman writes in Songs of Myself 51, Do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. 
Understanding how these contradictions can exist, but also not invalidate our claims, requires that we use both disability studies and trans studies. The former is evidenced in both Liz Crow's 1996 work and also Margaret Price's 2015 work on pain disorders. The latter in work from trans theorists such as Florence Ashley 2020. We will not spend a lot of time on them here. Suffice it to say, the desire to have release from pain does not negate disability theories. The desire to transform one's body to align with gender identity does not negate queer theories. Similarly, the desire to work on one's languaging to make it feel less disordered does not negate crip linguistics. In writing, the monomodal format often requires essentialism. Buckholtz, 2003. In other forms of languaging, the multimodal format allows for linguistic bogarts, phase, and quizlings, wherein multiple truths can exist in the same sentence in constantly shifting meanings, depending on the suprasegmental, facial, and body gestures. As the Tenth Doctor would say, Series 3, Episode 10, this is wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. The nature of crip linguistics defies essentialism. With the caveats in place, we will explain both the stipulations of crip linguistics, that language cannot be disordered, and that the environment disorders language. Subsection 5.2. Language use cannot be disordered. The idea that language use cannot be disordered is admittedly an unusual one in the world of speech and language pathologists, specialized education teachers, among others who have worked their entire lives on the question of how to undisorder language. For us to accept that some kinds of language are disordered, then we need to accept that there are ways of languaging that are wrong. Disordered language has multiple definitions depending on the field. They can be defined via expressive language, difficulties communicating in ways that others can understand, receptive language, difficulties understanding other people's communication, or even developmental, difficulty acquiring language, Paul, Norbury, and Goss, 2018. We accept that deciding that a kind of languaging is wrong has many different perspectives. First, people do feel that languaging is wrong when the languager uses dialectical variations that vary from what privileged groups decide as the best possible way to language, for example, ratiolinguistics, for example, Chioe Peña, 2020. Second, people feel that languaging is wrong when a child languages in different ways to the people in the house that they live in. For example, deaf children in hearing families. Hall, Eigsti, Bortfield, Lillo Martin, 2016. Subsection 5.3. Racism in language disorders. Yet, Expressive and receptive language disorders are often wrapped up in racist assumptions about what the appropriate way to express and receive language is. As many researchers and community activists point out, black children are often identified as having expressive and receptive language disorders related to the fact that racist systems are integrated into the educational experience. For example, Baker Bell 2019. Yet, the political fracas of the late 20th century Oakland, California Ebonics controversy demonstrated that people are willing to discard evidence-based research when the evidence does not match their agenda. Vaughn Cook, 1999. 
At the time, the Auckland School Board had passed a resolution allowing the use of Ebonics as a language of instruction and assessment. The school board later discarded the resolution and its possibly revolutionary changes in pedagogy. Understanding the Ebonics controversy is critical because children whose home language may differ from the school language are often assumed to be language disordered. Yamasaki and Luke 2018, Choe Peña 2020. As Yamasaki and Luke point out, multilingual and multimodal children are often assessed using language assessments which do not consider the myriad ways that they language. Depressed scores on these assessments, coupled with racist and ableist biases of the assessor, mean that multilingual and multimodal children are often considered language disordered. Subsection 5.4. Accentism and language disorders. As mentioned before, our definition of disordered is broad and refers to any languaging that is seen as in need of correction or fixing through various therapies. The association of disordered language with racism means that accents need to be discussed via the Crip linguistics lens. Therefore, if the goal is accent reduction, then this is seen as disordering language because the accent does not sound appropriate for non-disordered listeners. Ramjatan 2020 interviewed seven international engineering teaching assistants in Ontario, Canada, to detail their experiences being perceived as disordered speakers because of their accents. This population was chosen because, as Ramjatan pointed out, accented international teaching assistants are considered to be deficient. Deficient, of course, can be interpreted as disabled. While Ramjathan analyzes the data using a prism of racism, the language used to describe the accents and interpretation of accents by native speakers requires a disability analysis. And that includes signed language research. Deafblind and deaf-disabled people who use signed languages may be subjected to accentism on basis of how their language is impacted by body-mind differences, for example, those with cerebral palsy, and those who use pro-tactile sign languages. Burke 2018, Hayes 2021, Personal Communication. Accented people are deviants, deficient, and require therapy and adjusting to fit into the expected norms of native, abled speakers. Ramjatan's participants speak about being laughed at, abled gaze, about people and their students and peers refusing to understand what they're saying refusing accommodations. Subsection 5.5, Gender in Language Disorders. Perceptions of disordered language can also be attributed to rigidly enforced gender roles. In the US, at least, language from people who are perceived to be femmes is often policed by both masculine and feminine people. This often manifests in the form of negative feedback from audience members about structures that are perceived as feminine, such as tag questions or quotative like or vocal fry. Like Figueroa and Gill in 2018 explain in the Vocal Fry's podcast, once a structure is identified as femme, it doesn't matter that people who are mask also use it. The structure is considered deficient. The example they use in their September 10th, 2018 podcast is Johnny Cash, a United States country singer from the mid to late 20th century. 
Gillen also points out that what is femme-identifying in some languages, for example US English, is part of the phonological productivity in other languages. The example used is a Mexican language, Jalapa Mazatec, where the creaky voice produces a minimal pair. Some readers may be confused about why we are including this in the concept of disordered language. We assume that if language is interpreted as being wrongly produced, then it is in the mind of the perceiver fundamentally disordered and in need of fixing. Indeed, fixing femme-identifying language is a product in the US where individuals can pay money to train out of using these language elements. Accordingly, Femme-identifying languaging is also a good example of how the environment disorders language, because feminist spaces do not disorder femme-identifying language. Subsection 5.6. Sexuality and language disorders. In 2009, Van Borsel et al. published a study that indicated that gay men were more likely to be identified as lisping. While Van Borsen et al. explained that lisping, or a speech pattern in which alveolar consonants are pronounced with the tongue either on or between the front teeth, page 100, is not necessarily seen as disordered speech in children, it is recognized as one in adults. Notably, Van Borsen et al. argued that lisping was likely acquired in childhood as a way to identify with femininity. The adults who lisped, however, did not see their lisping as a deficiency, but rather a marker of identification with a community. Although the population in Van Borsel et al. found their lisp to be a positive identification with a marginalized group of people, Holmes 2019 seems to argue that in the heterogaze, that while the lisp is used to identify with femininity, the user attracts fetishization and infantilization, which means that people outside marginalized groups may use this positive identification in negative ways. The emphasis on infantilization mirrors Van Borsel et al.'s assertion that lisping is seen as fine for children, but not much for adults. More recently, Calder 2020 points out that how we perceive sounds or signing cannot be entirely separated from how we perceive the person. More specifically, if we assume someone to be feminine, then we are more likely to assume that they are lisping too. That is, disability, infantilization, and queer femininity are intractably linked. Subsection 5.7. Crip speech. The focus on speech as the modality means an unnecessary focus on the aesthetics of so-called proper speech. This is, of course, a driver of racism and sexism in languaging, as discussed previously. A pre-natural focus on aesthetics also allows for business models for those who sell products that masculine up or reduce accents in speech with the goal of making pleasing to the ear. Pleasing to the ear is intertwined with layers of gendered expectations. Beautiful voices, sexually attractive voices, masculine and feminine voices. Pleasing to the ear is also racialized, with sexy accents often regulated to specific European accents, for example Irish, or white colonizers in non-European countries, for example Australian. Pleasing to the ear is often described as natural, or imagined as what should be natural. For example, people perceived as women are expected to sound a particular way. To have masculine or rough speech, for example creaky voice, 
would be described as unnatural, ergo abnormal. Notions of naturalness extend to the sound of what one expects human speech to sound like. What happens when speech sounds different because of disability? Stuttering, lisping, mumbling, stammering, slurring are all markers of difference. Those markers signify not only disability, but are also interpreted as lack of intelligence, capacity, and agency. Those markers are subsequently used as rationale for exclusion. As Quiet Bob, a participant in Marshall 2014 who uses alaryngeal technology to speak, says, His speech isn't disabled, but people who have normative hearing interpret it as disabled. Assumptions that a speaker is competent only if fully endowed with abilities is disabling, and more so in a society where the cognitive life of the individual is its primary focus. In a society that values intelligence and ties that with linguistic competence, assumptions about a speaker's competence take on significance. Goodwin, 2004. Deaf people understood that people's intelligence and overall competence were judged on the basis of their capacity for speech. And one level of this judgment was intelligence, which was then tied to being viewed as worthy of participation in society as citizens. Robinson, 2010. Much of deaf people's linguistic advocacy surrounding crip speech and signed languages has centered on the fact that modality is not a signifier of intelligence, that signed languages are equally capable as spoken languages in communicating complex and abstract concepts, that deaf-accented speech is simply a function of not hearing the spoken language as produced, that deaf-mouthing is a product of print literacy. Some of those arguments have admittedly been rooted in ableist rhetoric in efforts to distance themselves from other disabled people. Tchaikovsky, 2001, Robinson, 2010. However, we recognize that deaf people who speak can and do use speech as a measure of proximity to hearingness and thus ability. See Ladd, 2003, Henner and Robinson, 2021. Yet Marshall 2014 complains that too much focus is given on the deaf experiences of crippled speech and not non-deaf experiences being speech divergent. The underlying assumption of Marshall's point is that deaf people are expected to have crippled speech. Hearing people are not, and when disability cripples hearing speech, then that is extra devastating. Indeed, Holmes 2019 posits that the goal of disfluency studies is to remind disability studies of its tendency to overlook the role of hearing and speaking in marginalizing specific disabled groups, even within disability studies. As deaf scholars, we are not in a position to argue against that perspective. Nevertheless, no doubt exists about the proximity with which deaf people exist to normative hearing and speech expectations, especially given that the goal of deaf education is often speech at the expense of everything else. Bainton, 1996. The pathologization of signed languages subordinated divergent languages and speech, establishing what McRuer 2006 describes as compulsory able-bodiedness. Compulsory abledness established norms where deaf children could and should learn to speak, and that through sufficient training, defects of the vocal cords of speech and of nonverbality would be erased. In creating this compulsory abledness vis-a-vis fluent use of spoken languages without accent, 
created expectations for the production of speech and language. And those who decided to use language outside of those expectations were deemed unruly body minds who did not want or could not be restored to society. Edwards 2012. What this did was generate stigma. By associating stigma with disability, different ways of using language, medicine and education intersected to create stigmatized forms of languaging and fueled phobias about disability. To some, the emphasis on speech and speaking as the sole language modality perpetuates not only ableism, but sexism, racism, cis-heteronormative ideologies. To move past these ideologies, an emphasis on linguistic multimodality is not only needed, but essential. Section 6. A crib linguistics recognizes that languaging is multimodal. Friedner and Bloch 2017 once asked, how might current research on multimodality and the use of expansive communicative repertoires in language and communication create new pathways for understanding deaf and autistic people's language and communicating practices? We extend this question to more broadly ask this of linguistics. How does understanding current research on disabled languaging and critical disability studies help us better understand language at large and its relationship to structural exclusions? That language is multimodal is not a new idea in linguistics. Bollinger in 1946 wrote, for some reason, the very insistence upon language as a spoken phenomenon, i.e. as behavior, has been accompanied by a close concentration upon a limited number of behavior patterns, the latter suggestively reminiscent in their selection for ease of recordability of the written forms from which we were supposed to have been emancipated. It is only by a return once more to the whole of communicative behaviors with energies of linguists more evenly distributed that we shall avoid the overgrowth and premature refinement of one or two component parts. Page 92. Here, Bollinger suggests the focus on language as unimodal, or speech alone, was done because it is convenient. Most linguists use spoken language. Many linguists use languages that use spoken phonemes as the basis for coding into written modalities. Bollinger correctly recognized that this limited linguistic analysis to what can be recorded and analyzed via written forms. The challenge of reliance of written forms and written modalities for linguistic analysis means that one, languages without easily accessible or standardized written forms tend to be left out of linguistic analyses, for example, signed languages, and number two, the bulk of language analysis is done on languages and language materials from dominant languages and cultures. See Bender et al. 2020 for an explanation. An example of point one can be found in Thomson, Roberts, and Lupion 2020's description of cultural influences on word meanings. Thomson et al. sought to find to what extent word meanings in spoken languages are aligned. As they explain it, words that reflect common everyday experiences outside of the boundaries of geography and culture, for example, eat, should be aligned or used similarly in similar contexts. In the fields of deaf education or signed language interpreting, we would claim that semantically aligned terms would have one-to-one -one mapping. However, the data they used came from the North Uralex dataset, Delbert et al. 2019, which has no signed languages contained in it. 
That means that Thompson et al. claim that they have data from 41 languages is not entirely accurate. They have data from 41 spoken languages, and accordingly their conclusions about semantic alignment says nothing about language specifically. Rather, their conclusions can only be applied to spoken language. The limitations of North Yorolex is due to the lack of a standardized printed form for many signed languages, Grushkin 2017. No printed form means no inclusion in the database, means no analysis that can be generalized to languages per se, and the field remains focused on spoken languages alone because spoken languages via orthographies are easier to analyze. That languages need written forms to be analyzed is a recursive problem. To analyze languages abstracted from the speaker, they need to be written. If a language is not written, it cannot be abstracted from the speaker. Historically, the response to this recursive problem has been to develop written forms for these languages. Grushkin 2017. In the case of deaf children and signed languages, this requires that schools who teach those children pick and use a written form. But that will not happen because there are many competing systems and the usual complaints about teaching a written language that is not the printed form of the spoken language will arise. But also, it encourages the belief that the only way for a language to be valid is for it to have a written language. In this section, we will briefly examine three aspects of multimodal language that linguists need to consider when analyzing language. Although linguistic ethnographers and theorists like Penny Cook have included expansive modes of languaging in their work, we believe that theoretical linguistics continues to ignore the semiotic repertoire, Custers et al. 2017, in its stubborn adherence to modality chauvinism. Here, we outline a few aspects of languaging that theoretical linguists should include in their work. They are a. Visual language, for example, signed languages, gestures. b. Graphemic languages, for example, sequential art, iconicity, and alternative and augmentative communication, AAC, and c. Tactile languages. We recognize more modalities exist, for example, written. Our exclusion of them is not meant to marginalize. We have selected these three as possible areas of focus, but if more can be done, then they should be done. Subsection 6.1. Visual language. Of the three aspects of multimodality discussed in this article, the visual language modality has had the most focus by linguists. Our discussion, therefore, is not on what parts of visual language can be analyzed by linguists, but rather to what extent should focus on visual language be embedded in all linguistic analyses and in the linguistics teaching curriculum. In visual language, we do not distinguish signed languages and gestures, except to point out that previous essentialism on what is gesture and what is signed language was necessary to promote the idea that signed languages are true languages. Even today, researchers conflate gesture and signed languages to make the claim that signed languages are inferior or not real languages compared to speech. See Crow, Marshak, Damayer, and Ahane 2017 for examples. Our perspective is very clear. At no point in the curriculum should spoken language compositionality be mentioned without visual language compositionality. Succinctly, no mention of Prat without Elan. More to the point, all human languaging is multimodal. Pernis 2018. 
Any teaching or analysis of language which does not consider multimodality therefore does not compose language itself, but rather a specific modality in languaging. To be clear, if an analysis of a language only considers the spoken modality, then it is not an analysis of language, it is an analysis of speech. Even signed language researchers are not immune to challenges in discussing how disabled people use language. As Ho and Custer's 2020 point out, Signed language researchers tend to classify visual languages among gesture, home sign, communal, village, national, urban groupings. These groupings can divide users among disability and racial lines. Whose language is gesture? Whose is home sign? Whose is urban? These categories need to be analyzed within a cryptlinguistic framework. Subsection 6.2, graphemic language. Graphemic languages, as used here, includes a wide range of pictorial-based communication, such as icons, signs, drawings, computer graphics, memes, emojis, and sequential art. Semiotic analysis is not unknown among linguistics, for example, Morel 2016. And recent internet linguists, such as McCulloch 2020, have brought analysis of graphemic language to general populations. However, linguistic analysis of how people use graphemic languages as a primary form of languaging seems limited, except in domains of specialized education, for example, Soto and Olmsted 1993. Works such as von Techner 2015 demonstrate the semiotic potential of AAC, and people who follow AAC users on social media, such as at semi-speaking, can witness the immense intertextual knowledge required among AAC users for using and developing new iconicity. However, even von Techner frames AAC users as being deficient. The users have failed to develop speech. There has been some major work on sequential art as being linguistic by Kohn, for example, Kohn 2019. Kohn has worked to show that sequential art can be broken down into constituent parts much like spoken, signed, and written language. For example, a series of sequential images can be clustered into an arc. The arc is broken into establisher, initial, prolongation, peak, and release sections. Each section can add complexity via clauses. Cohn's theories have repeatedly been supported by analyses of brainwaves, event-related potential, ERP, which evidence that the brain sees and processes sequential art linguistically. That sequential art is linguistic is further supported by the research which indicates that seeing sequential art as linguistic requires exposure and training, Cohn 2019. Yet, once a skill is seen as normative, people apply normative expectations to having the skill, and children who do not conform to these normative expectations are seen as deviant. Manfredi et al. 2020 studied the visual narrative processing of autistic children and compared them to able children. They found differences in how the autistic children perceived the visual narratives. This, according to Manfredi et al., was a deficit. In explaining the results, Manfredi et al. pointed to the lower IQs of the autistic children as one explanation for the differences in perceiving narratives, thus contributing to the idea of language, intelligence, and disability being linked. Here, we wish to remind readers that differences should not be seen as deficits. 
Another avenue for linguistic analysis of graphemic language is augmentative and alternative communication, AAC. AAC is used by people who do not speak and do not sign for a variety of reasons. Many kinds of AAC exist, see GANs 2015. The most recognizable forms are icons that are used via technology, for example an iPad or a communication board. AAC users point to or press the icons. Some complex AAC devices will associate a sentence with an icon such that the AAC user can press an icon and the device will speak or write the associated sentence. Although ableist perceptions of AAC as inferior to speech and even sign languages mean that many young disabled children do not have access to a workable AAC system for years, see Moorcraft, Skirinci, and Maya 2020 for a discussion, adult AAC users show the same love for their AAC as many marginalized users of a language. Tuttle Turtle, for example, points out that AAC is a necessary part of their gender presentation, evidencing that as a language, AAC has the same indexicality of disability, gender, race, and sexuality, among others, as other kinds of languaging. Subsection 6.3, Tactile Language. Deafblind people have recently introduced the notion of protactile, a philosophy of communication that embraces the use of touch as a sensory pathway to language and cognition. Edwards 2018, Bradbury et al. 2019, Clark 2020. During conversation, deafblind people use the senses of touch, movement, heaviness, and lightness to receive language from interlocutors. The interlocutors lend their hands, arms, bodies to the deafblind signer, allowing their bodies to be manipulated to co-construct meaning. Touch can be used to communicate environmental information, not only what is uttered, but to also give the deafblind person a sense of space, surroundings, and audience responses. In a show of the expansive potentiality of crip language, John Lee Clark prepared a presentation where he co-created content in clusters with attendees. Each group experienced and understood the message in different ways, depending on shared knowledge and with the expectation to respond in collaborative ways. Clark rejects the premise that it is possible for audience members to get the same message. Instead, the audience co-construct speech, inserting their perceptions and worked toward mutual understanding. The attendees did not experience the speech in the same order. They received the speech in different parts at different times, with meanings that shifted with each group. Section 7. Crip Ways of Being in Language Critical Disability Studies offers frameworks for thinking about, talking about, theorizing, and applying linguistics to disabled languages. Linguistic ethnographers who work with deaf and disabled people have shown us how disabled people use language. For example, Ho and Custer's 2020, Moriarty 2019. Yet, as we've pointed out, this work has not bridged to theoretical linguistics or even applied linguistics, for example, Pennycook 2021. Here, we make connections to critical disability theories by examining languaging through a critical disability lens. In critical disability studies, theorists are encouraged to ask questions like how is normativity defied? How are white, ableist, and Eurocentric ways of thinking about language exposed? 
Disability studies scholars have theorized cryptime interdependence and cryptechnoscience, which help theorists analyze interdependence, relationality, mutual aid, care work, adaptation, and innovation thematically. Those frameworks, through a critical disability lens, shifts our conversations about time, space, and the body in relation to language. Section 8. Adaptation of Critical Disability Studies to Theoretical and Applied Linguistics. Critical Disability Applied Linguistics, Crip Linguistics. In disability studies, there are conversations about how disability shapes our relationship with time. As disability studies scholar Ellen Samuels 2017 outlines in Six Ways of Looking at Crip Time, disability stretches, bends, contracts, and explodes time. Crip linguistics exists within crip time. We recognize time as a factor that generates deficit perspectives about language and contributes to the disordering of language through attitudes and expectations. What happens when we have crip departures from normative time. Abled people expect language acquisition to take place on a very specific timeline with limited investment from themselves. Children are expected to achieve linguistic benchmarks by certain ages, for example, critical periods. And often these benchmarks are facilitated by co-development of physical traits among similar checkpoints. For example, Wall and Campos 2014 argue that language development is related to the acquisition of walking. Does that mean that children who do not walk do not acquire language or that their language is in deficit? They do not study non-walking children. However, children who use mobility augmentation and technology such as wheelchairs can and do learn language. Any failure to meet benchmarks on time reinforces deficit views of the language produced by disabled children. The normal timeline is determined by ideals and averages as imagined by academics, medical professionals, and educators. This does not take into account how different body minds take time to process and acquire language. Then when those children fail to meet those temporal linguistic benchmarks, they are labeled with disordered language. For example, Hoff, Tullock, and Core 2021 seem to imply that children who are not English-dominant bilinguals by five years of age may be intellectually disabled. Those timelines create and reinforce deficit ideas about children's intelligence and agency. Crip linguistics urges us to think about the fluidity of time and the capacity of the body-mind to develop language, achieve understanding, and communication. Abled people expect communication to be quick, efficient, and spoken. As Samuels and Freeman 2021 point out, what is nearly always true, however, is that using a different form of technology for access reasons means everything takes longer. And this is true not just for users of complex technologies like screen readers. Differences such as having only limited fingers available for typing or using one's mouth to hold a pen or being able to look at screens for only an hour per day or processing written information better than oral or the other way around, all of those differences from the presumed norm mean that the work is done in different temporalities. A common complaint is that those using AAC wished for more time in conversations so that the discourse could accommodate their voices. Ashby and Carsten Theo Harris, 2012. Abled people do not realize, nor do they consider, 
what normative expectations cost people in terms of language learning, building relationships, and self-actualization among disabled people. Disabled people manifest this loss as a collective grief. They grieve language they didn't have access to and couldn't learn, or struggled with people's impatience with us and reluctance to go slow, to repeat, to gesture, and the costs of impatience with communications. Brueggemann, 1997, Price, 2021. What expansive potentialities might we discover in the stretch of patience in languaging with each other? Like Custer's 2017 demonstrated in her study of translanguaging in India, people invested in mutual understanding, for example, through gesture-based conversation, would be willing to repeat their utterances or the other person's utterances. Several repetitions might be required to achieve understanding. Sometimes repetition is accompanied by guesswork, search sequences, language games, and listening for multimodal cues, which can stretch out seemingly brief language exchanges. Goodwin, 1995. And as artist Christine Sun Kim puts it, crip time and language is punctuated by writing or scrawling questions in reading and the creativity in ad-lib responding. Kim, 2021. But the labor in co-constructing meaning, in listening actively through waiting for interpreters or scrawled words, impatience and insistence upon normative languaging time, imposes limits on an interlocutor's agency. Crip language insists that crip time and languaging is vital for a person's agency, be it through interpretation, translation, delayed speech, repetition, gesture, movements and gaze, and prosodic changes. Language is multimodal, interdependent, and both the user and the listener cannot be separated from the semiotic environment. Goodwin, 2004. Some forms of crip languaging, like signed languages, are capable of conveying multiple layers of information at the same time, bending and contracting time simultaneously, able to communicate information about the past and the future, reaching both backward and forward in time. Here, crypt time relies on the intrinsic multimodality of languaging, which goes beyond what is possible via speech alone. This simultaneous bending and contraction and explosion of time is best seen in signed language literature. Bauman, Nelson Rose, 2006, Bauman and Murray, 2014. This investment of time, the stretching of time to accommodate communication and understanding, and the ability to transcend national and linguistic boundaries in translanguaging across multiple modalities, Moriarty and Custis, 2021, offers only small glimpses of the potency of crip languaging. But as some scholars have reminded us, crip time can also be full of potential, joy, resistance, and agency. The ways disability interacts with time and language can reveal the potency of communication. For example, the benefits of text-based or solely text-based communications, as demonstrated by deafblind people, shows that written language can serve as a standalone modality for some, while offering a full range of benefits. Among those benefits are greater flexibility in how and when to communicate, and the ability to slow the speed of communication in real time, which offers opportunities to reflect on what is being said. Friedner Sanchez Mills, 2020. Section 9. Care Work and Interdependence in Crip Languaging. Crip linguistics shows us what is possible in language brokering and mutual meaning making. 
One aspect of language brokering is the emphasis on relationship building as a part of the languaging process between disabled people. Like Custer's 2017 writes, once acquaintance was made, the time and effort communication required diminished. They know what they can expect and a certain schema is in place. One lesson from crip languaging is the idea of interdependence and forms of access intimacy through the discourse process. And there is evidence that deaf people's communication is driven by an intrinsic moral value to actively understand and be understood using a wide range of semiotic tools across languages. Moriarty and Custer's 2021. What is care work in languaging? Care work in languaging is not similar to traditional caregiving, but visioned through the framework developed by disability justice activist and author Leah Pipsna Samarasinha, 2018. Linguistic care work is the time taken in being patient, in supporting and providing semiotic resources, in seeking, expanding, and claiming our own semiotic resources, in calibrating to each other, in seeking mutual understanding. This is not only care work, but care work through languaging and being invested in collective access and belonging. Linguistic care work in the context of disability justice is to work together to create and provide optimal environments and material conditions for language and mutual understanding to take place. Being an interlocutor requires a willingness to listen attentively, parse meaning, and abandon prescriptive ideas about language. Each party in the conversation engages to the best of their ability. Furthermore, each party is an active participant in constructing meaning. The level of effort may vary, but it is never a fully passive process. This recognizes that language does not stand alone as a self-contained entity, but emerges from and is situated within the talk of others to which it is inextricably linked. Goodwin, 1995. In fact, if the interlocutors are cooperative, they can co-construct meaning through the use of others' speech. Linguistic anthropologist Charles Goodwin notes that a man with aphasia, Rob, who was only able to speak three words, was able to engage in complicated language by using resources provided by the speech of others. Rob was able to participate in conversation through talk interaction, pointing, and using varied intonations. Goodwin, 1995. Embracing language as an intimate process, grounded in a desire to mutually understand one another, rather than label such work as disordered communication, means labeling communication aids, including language games and sign language interpretation, as natural aspects of languaging and human communication. As Goodwin frames it, a speaker requires a larger social and semiotic matrix that encompasses the bodies, talk, and actions of others, as well as the way in which they are situated within a particular historical, social, and material environment. Goodwin 2004. Those games and interactions between Goodwin's subjects Rob and Chill and their respective families and caretakers are good examples of linguistic care work. Crip linguistics is therefore about putting the people back in languaging and recognizing that analyzing languaging without considering the languages separates the language from the work that people put into producing them, especially via disabled bodies. Relationships as an extension of interdependence emphasizes that crip languaging is more valued by disabled people because of the effort and work involved. Green 2014. 
This is also a form of access intimacy. Mia Mingus in Hamria and Fritch 2019 describes access intimacy as a crip relational practice produced when interdependence informs the making of access. As such, interdependent ways of languaging, like augmented speech, do not appeal to many abled people. For example, as McKay's work with aphasia patients showed, the patients were viewed as incompetent because of their voicelessness. Given an acceptance of interdependence and care work in languaging via crip time, the patients would be viewed as competent. Rossetti et al., 2008. Section 10. Conclusion. Hamride 2013 asks us to think about the politics of access through the framework of interdependence. Languaging as an important site of access to the world, to politics, to belonging, to citizenship, thus demands that we think about this through the lens of collective access and care. Rejecting monolingualism and monomodality are two beginning steps. Embracing time, space, and material environments in meaning-making are also preliminary steps. Interdependence also asks us to think about our built environments and how that impacts access, Hamrai 2013, and in our case, language. Hamrai and Fritsch's 2019 practices of interdependence, access intimacy, and collective access can be understood as alternative political technologies through crypt technoscience. Crypt technoscience is critique, alteration, and reinvention. It is how disabled people alter and reinvent the world in order to make access happen. The relationship between science, technology, and language is such that the dismissal of disabled ways of languaging has resulted in inaccessible technologies. What's next, then? We invite theoretical and applied linguists to use cripplinguistics, in some cases, via disidentification. Disidentification describes identifying with, but not as a member, of another marginalized group. Schalk, 2013. In identifying with, but not as, one recognizes that they are implicated by the culture and politics of another group and seek to better understand this link. Schalk urges us to think of disidentification as a careful, conscious joining, a standing sitting among rather than by or behind a group. We invite linguists across socio, queer, trans, and raciolinguistics to seek ways to identify with crip linguistics. What are our similarities and overlaps? What do we bring to each other in our interrogations and frameworks? In the places where those disidentifications occur across or between or among minoritized subjects, how might we develop coalitional theories that are attentive to a variety of marginalized groups? We want to think about how the logics that uphold ideas about disordered languaging is rooted in racism, accentism, in sounding a certain way, in communicating and languaging in certain ways, and how those logics are similar and overlapping. In disidentification within linguistics, as queer, trans, gendered, disabled, and racialized languaging, can we seek the ways in which they overlap in terms of being characterized as disordered? and how languages characterized as disordered are marginalized, belittled, disregarded. On contrary to what people believed of Helen Keller's languaging capacity and the contributions of theoretical linguists to this chauvinism, 
Contemporary deafblind poet and essayist John Lee Clark has written about distantism and the philosophy of protactile. Clark's description of meetings of deafblind people reveals a world of co-constructed meaning, mutual misunderstanding, as Pennycook 2018 describes, bent and stretched and manipulated time, sensory orientations and translanguaging, the morality of language calibration and mutual understanding as care work for access, and practices of access intimacy, adaptations of technology, and relationality. To some, disabled people do really cool things with language if linguists would pay attention. Acknowledgements, Lin Ho. It was her tweet that started this. Thanks for prompting us to have this conversation. Erin Moriarty Harrelson, many thanks for the articles, encouragement, and comments on early drafts. Much gratitude to Emily Carrigan, Megan Figueroa, and Aparna Nair for editing and early commentary as well as personal conversations. To our disabled communities for their crip wisdom and joy. <laughs>